0: good morning everybody oh there's a lot more people i i I was remarking last week that there were a lot of us here that were not present that's that's but now you're back from vacation so good morning everybody so today we will be talking (laughs) Ah. (laughs) puberty strikes again so today we'll be, we will be talking about God's discipline. So we touched briefly on it last week, right? It's just a touch like that. And today we'll discuss it in further detail. How does God discipline us and what does that mean? So as my new custom, now we will be reading a lot of scripture. So please try to stay awake uh, and just read with me. Don't read out loud, just read with me. I'll read it, read it to you and then we'll get to work, we'll pray. So we're reading selected verses from Genesis 42 to 44. We're skipping some verses, but I think the narrative will be clear. So let's, let's get started. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, so the famine happens at this point, right? He said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us. So... There, so that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Now Joseph was governor over all the land. He was the one who sold all to all the people of the land. So remember last week there was a dream that Pharaoh had about a famine coming, and then Joseph became prime minister, and he prepared everything. So now he's selling the grain that they've stored up. Um, And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father. And one is no more. That must have been terrible, right? One is no more. I'm right here. You thought you killed me. right? Uh, but Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, You are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, Surely you're a spy And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So they go home, right? They were released from prison and they meet up with their father. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. So they took, uh, so the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men who are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and they were merry with him. Then he commanded the steward of his house Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to the steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. So uh, Joseph framed his own brother, made him look like he stole the cup. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy, as a servant to the Lord, to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would would find my brother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for just allowing us to gather, to study your word together. Lord, we need you. We need to hear from you. We need to know you more today. Lord, help us understand who you are, what you do in our lives, and consequently help us understand ourselves, Lord. Um, We thank you, Lord, that you have not left, left us in the dark, that you have given us your word, your revelation, and that every page, Lord, in your book is saturated with you. Lord, you want us to find you, and we just pray, Father, that today you open our eyes so that we may see your beauty and your goodness in your word. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen. So we are still, as Pastor in song said, in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. And now we're discussing the life of Joseph. Um, as I was preparing this message, right, and studying the life of Joseph, there was this... I, I realized something, um, The story of Joseph is saturated with suffering. Don't you guys agree? There's a lot of rough stuff in there. Even just the stuff we read, the the things that went on with him and his brothers, that's pretty hard, right? I imagine, Mike, if your brother did that to you, that would be terrible, right? He threw you in jail. My own brother, oh. Oh, he didn't know his... Anyway. um, Anyway. I'm realizing that even, you know, Joseph's life was saturated with, with suffering. And I, I am beginning to realize how much more relatable he is because it's been a rough year for me and my wife. Um, and for many of us here, it's been a rough year. We are suffering, right? Some of us are not going through good times at all. And it's interesting because Joseph really is pretty much just like one of us. His brothers are one of us and what's interesting is i'm realizing too that scripture does not only depict suffering it also promises suffering look at this verse here in first peter um it's in chapter four reading verses 12 to 13 beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you so that's crazy, right? The Bible, we only like the good promises, right, Pastor? I, I've i bookmarked all those good promises, and I recite them ev- No, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> um, scripture promises suffering, that suffering is inevitable. Do not be surprised. It's going to happen, and it's only a question of when and uh, how. But it's going to happen. And I was thinking about that, and truthfully, it's... It's rough to think about that, that suffering is going to happen, but it is going to happen. So, Scripture promises, Scripture first describes suffering. It shows suffering happening to the people of God, and then it promises that it will happen to us, the readers. So, the next question is Does Scripture explain suffering? Does it give us a reason why we suffer? What's the answer? No, actually, sorry, Pastor, Ai. No, it doesn't fully, right? There is no... You will not find a passage in Scripture that will tell you, oh, you are suffering. You have a... Like Denise, you have a, a broken leg because you will get a million dollars. No, that... Scripture doesn't say that, right? Of course, there are story, We're reading the story of Joseph and then we're seeing the ending. Oh, God has a purpose. It's, it's amazing. He's saving all these people. But if we were Joseph, if it was happening to us, we wouldn't think that way, right? We, when we're in there, it's going to be hard and rough, right? We can't, so again, like I said last week, we can't really make templates out of the stories of other people in Scripture because their story is different. God has a different purpose for that time and place and everything. So what I'm realizing is, Yes, scripture does not explain specifically why we suffer and to what end. It gives us big brush strokes, right? God will be glorified and everything. What it does provide is it provides for us a lens to see suffering, right? A lens means, you know, like this image here, you're looking at suffering, and if you look at it through a lens, it gets a different color, right? So everybody suffers, believers, non-believers. The difference is if you're a believer and you have scripture, you have a lens to see your suffering. You get an understanding. Not a full understanding, but just enough so that you, you understand what's going on, right? But enough that you have hope. So there is no one-line answer for suffering in scripture. If you study the book of Job, there are hints there. That, Ecclesiastes, will give you some hints and all that stuff. But in the story of Joseph specifically, um, we get to see that suffering is allowed and even sometimes ordained by God so that he disciplines us, right? Disciplines us. Let me say that again. Suffering is sometimes allowed or even ordained by God in order to discipline us if we use that as a lens to see suffering, I think it helps. I, you know, again, it's I'm using this on myself. I'm preaching to myself here. Um, uh, so we lost our babies, you've heard. Now my new thing is, oh, I might have a heart problem from all the stress of just thinking about that, and, and all the bacon. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, I'm trying to filter my own life through the lens of God's discipline, why He allows suffering and all that. So, the scripture we read, we'll try to understand under four headings. First, we're, we'll try to understand, based on the story of Joseph and his brothers, why God disciplines us. Why does God allow suffering? Why does He allow us to, you know, for purposes of discipline, why does He allow these things to enter into our lives? We'll see why that panned out in their story. And then we'll see in that story as well how God disciplines us. And then, thirdly, we'll try to answer how God is able to discipline us. And then, lastly, we'll look at the application. How do we live under God's discipline? Okay, so let's read this verse again. Um, why does God discipline us, right? So let's just look at that highlighted portion. So he sends Jacob, so. They're experiencing the famine, and he sends his uh, sons away to get grain from Egypt. In verse 4, there's something really telling here. Let's read it. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared harm might happen to him. So I think that statement reveals a lot about the heart of Jacob, right? Right? So why does ha- God have to discipline Jacob's family? Right? What was wrong with Jacob, his sons, even Joseph? Um, so remember the promise of God that he was going to bring forth the Messiah. So we, we know the story, right? We Spoilers. It's like you have uh, George Martin's transcript for Game of Thrones if you're watching that thing. Um, we know that God was going to use Israel... He's going to make this country that was going to be specific, that was going to be unique, so that people will get to know him, and through them will come the Messiah. Now, these 12 guys right, were supposedly the starting point for, for this country. But where, where were they? What was happening with them? They were messed up. right? They were dysfunctional. Um, Jacob wasn't able to discipline his children well, right? Why? Because there's this whole thing about Rachel and Leah that never went away from the heart and mind of Joseph or of Jacob. Sorry, um, there, was a, there was favoritism in his family, right? Clearly, he favored one wife's children to the other, right? Look, if we go back to that verse, he speaks harshly, harshly to his brothers, right? He was telling them, Hey, why are you just staring around? We're waiting to die. You better go there. And so he was a, little, a bit rough on them, right? Instead of being an encouraging figure. And then obviously he favors Benjamin. right? He was clinging on to Benjamin. So the question we need to ask here is, why did Jacob love Rachel's children more than Leah's? Right? The consequent question would be, what did Rachel represent to Jacob anyway? Why was he so one-sided with his children? He should know better, right? He's, he's supposedly the patriarch of Israel. And all, he is Israel, but you know he does this bad thing. If you've been to any of the parenting seminars, they would tell you favoritism will kill your family. It'll screw everything up. So here we are, our patriarch, one of the fathers of our faith, doing the, the thing that we tell you not to do. So why did he do it? So Rachel represents, what? An idol, right? Rachel ceased to be Rachel, and she became this idea that Jacob fell in love with, right? So what is idolatry again? Let's review. Worshiping someone or something other than God. That's our stock definition, right? Of course, it would beg the question, you know, but Jacob wasn't an idolater, he didn't have idols, he worshipped the God of Israel, the God of Abram and Isaac and him. Um, it's not like he has Olmec, you guys know Olmec? Anyone here know Olmec? <laughs> if you are, I think this was the late 90s and early 2000s, you would know about this. If you had cable, you would have seen this. So It's not like he had Olmec at his house worshipping him, right? He was not an idolater based on our traditional definition of idolatry. Us being, you know, Catholics, we kind of understand that, hey, if you have like an image you're praying to, that's kind of wrong. The Bible explicitly says don't worship an image, blah, blah, blah. He wasn't doing that, right? So what was he doing? He was a functional idolater. There was functional idolatry in his life. Although... Outwardly, he wasn't worshiping a different God. In his heart of hearts, he is loving someone else, right? We're going to read this quote from my favorite pastor, Tim Keller. He explains it real well. I'm going to read it to you. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. An idol is whatever... You look at and say, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, I'll feel that my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. That was what was going on in the heart of Jacob. If you remember his story, if we go back a few months ago when Pastor I was teaching it, didn't it say there that he worked for Rachel seven years, but it only seemed like a few days because of his love for him. That's extreme, right? That's, he was worshiping the idea of Rachel, right? And it carried over into his family. Um, So idolatry is really deadly because there's this idea, and I think it was, uh, it's either Martin Luther who said this or Calvin, I don't remember, but he says that Really, we never break the other commandments without first and also breaking the first one. right? Every sin that we commit, everything that we do that's against God is first rooted the, in the idea of loving something else. Right? We find something more beautiful than God. That's why we do what we do. Right? For me, if my... If, for me, money is more beautiful than God, being rich is more beautiful than God, I am not rich, by the way, Um, then I, I would probably lie and cheat on my taxes, right? I would probably steal money because I'm in love with money. So at the end of the day, I'm doing the bad thing I'm doing because fundamentally in my heart, I don't love God. And I don't believe that God is beautiful. I don't believe that God is enough. I don't, really, I don't believe that God will provide for me, so I'll have to steal. I'll have to cheat on my taxes. I'll have to rob people, whatever. So the sin underneath every sin is idolatry. Not believing that God is good. Not believing that he is beautiful. Not believing that he will be what you're looking for. So that is what was going on in the life of Jacob, right? Rachel overpowered God in his life. Therefore, he wasn't able to be the father that he was supposed to be. Um, his family was well on its way, not to becoming this great nation that, from which the Messiah will come, but they were on their way to breaking up, right? Who knows if there were tensions within the ten brothers, It it got so bad that they wanted to kill Joseph, and they were going to do it, except for a couple of the other brothers, right? So this is why God disciplines us. This is why God allows suffering in our lives. Many times when personally I've gone through something, God shows me that my heart is pretty dark and that I am not in love with him. When he allows suffering, when he allows pain, when he disciplines me, it's because he loves me. It's because he loves us. And God knows that our hearts are flawed. Um, Our hearts, I think we, Denise was hanging out out at our house last, uh, when was that, Friday? It was all a blur. Um, And we were just talking about this very thing, that in every season of life, in every moment, the tendency of our heart, let's say we've overcome this thing that we used to worship, our heart even though we're saved, even though we're redeemed, our heart tends to make an idol out of something else, right? Um, let's say I've overcome my addiction for buying guitars. Right, I'm over it. It used to be my identity. I have guitars. I'm a guitar guy. But then I switch over to sports and I become a Golden State Warriors fan. I jump on the bandwagon. Tito Gill's car is dragging the wagon and I jump on. <laughs> you know... You know, people get obsessed with sports and they I think I have a relative who died because the basketball team lost. Right? Because we begin to that's a very obvious and telling thing where we begin to put our value in the team. It's crazy, right? That shouldn't be the case. It's silly, I know, it's funny, but people do it. Right? People beat up other people in the parking lot. Right? Sean used to do that. No, he didn't he used to do it. <laughs> So once God disciplined us, right, our hearts are broken and he wants us to become more and more like Jesus, right, D- himself, Christ-like. So while God's love is unconditional, it, it's also disciplinarian, I would say. Here's another nice quote from Tim Keller that sums up what I was trying to say over there. Um, God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and accepts us as we are. But by His grace, He does not leave us as we are. Right? That's, that's the truth of Christianity. God will... I mean, we shouldn't be obsessed with our transformation that, because then it becomes all about us. We should be focused on God. But the more we focus on God, the more we spend time with Him, the more He changes us. Right? If you're a Christian or you say you're a Christian and nothing is happening, that's disconcerting. You have to you don't go to pastor and song or anyone, you go to God. Lord, why am I not changing? What's wrong? So right but if there's a visible struggle, then it means God is with us, right? And also that means if we're believers, we're not exempt from suffering, right? Because suffering oftentimes oftentimes is God's tool to discipline us. So now let's talk specifically about how God disciplines us. How did he do it to Jacob and his family? All right? So remember again Jacob was unable to discipline his sons due to his idolatry and he was an imperfect father. He as my notes would say he failed them and we will fail. I just wanted to put that there because I heard a sermon from a guy Years ago, I think at Lake Avenue Church, he was saying that um, all fathers, I was father briefly, and I failed. I sucked at it. But um, all fathers, even though they try their best, will still fail. We will still fail because we're sinners. We're imperfect. As much as we say we want to parent our children perfectly, we do what's best for them, sometimes part of it is, We're selfish and all that stuff, but that's perfect because I know I know my dad wasn't perfect. I kind of resent some of the things that he's done. He said they still hurt me. They still wound me. But all those things that my own earthly father neglected, God has stepped in and filled that void. Right? When our fathers miss out on something, don't hate them. Young kids, don't hate your fathers. Don't hate your parents when they fail because. God allows that so that we run to him because God ultimately is our father, right? We, we try our best, we do our best, but we will fail. But ultimately, God will step in. So do not be disgruntled with your parents because our real parent is God. I'm losing my voice. Okay, so how does God discipline us? Let's read... So we're going to jump into the New Testament. Let's read, I believe this is, is this Hebrews? Hebrews 7 7 to 11. So, endure hardship. Read along with me this time. It's pretty short. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, you are not legitimate. Not true sons and daughters at all. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So God allowed discipline, or disciplined Jacob and his sons, because they weren't really... They weren't looking like God. They were looking like everyone else at the time. Everyone else was free to murder, do whatever they wanted. But God was, again, from last week, God is faithful to his people. He promised them that he will do them good. So he steps in and he disciplines them. Now, the word discipline has a very bad connotation in our culture, right? When you say you're disciplining your child... Normally, the way we understand it culturally is we're punishing our our children, right? We're just, I'm going to discipline you so bad, you'll regret it. You'll never do it again. Uh, However, when Hebrews uses the word punishment, it uses this Greek word paideia. And that word, the definition of it, is this. It has to do with the whole training and education of children, uh, which relates to the cultivation of mind, morals, and employs for this purpose now commands and admonitions, now reproof and punishment. And it also includes the training and care of the body. So what the word paideia, the word discipline, that um, Paul uses in Hebrews, um, basically doesn't mean just punishment. It means taking care of the whole well-being of the person. It's like if fonty Right, went to the gym, lifted hard. I'm gonna tell him to go into an ice bath so that he can recover and then go back into the gym. Basically, it's a holistic approach to discipline. It's not just introducing pain in the lives of the people, but it's also taking care of them, encouraging them. I would tell, now Sarah is doing CrossFit, I would also encourage her, just slap on more 45s so you can do it, right? It's, you can lift that, it's easy. And then, you know, I'll feed her steak later if I were her coach right? Really fatty cuts of steak. Um, so I'm just trying to explain that paideia is just not a one way thing where it's just all harsh punishment all the time. There are moments of, of joy and levity, right? You, you can't, um, like we can't discipline. I remember Pastor Peter saying in, in, the, in the parenting seminars, you can't just go like 100% punishment all the time. You're not the punisher, Sometimes you have to encourage your child so that they don't grow bitter and all that stuff. So how did God apply paideia to the life of Joseph and his brothers? So when Joseph started out, he was he a good guy? class, do you remember? No, right? If you remember Pastor Nsong's sermon, he was a liar. He would He would make up stuff about his brothers. He was already the favorite, and to rub it in, he would would tell them about his dreams and visions and tell them that basically you're going to bow down to me and all that so he was kind of a jerk right um the brothers they were destined to be the heads of the tribes of israel but what were they they were bitter they were jealous and they were murderous again god steps in what does he do this is who here likes like uh japanese action films and all that Anyone? Any, anyone a fan? Anime? Nobody? Okay. There you go. So, have you guys ever heard of anyone refer to a Hanzo sword? Hatori Hanzo sword? I, I just googled it. It might not be a Hanzo sword. But apparently that's one of the most, um, that's probably the best uh, samurai blade you can get. It's the toughest, it's the sharpest, right? It can cut through whatever. And how did they make swords? How did they make these sharp and beautiful swords? Well, they temper the steel. They use hot and cold, right? I guess what they do is they bring it to a certain temperature, and then they shape portions of it, and then they dip it in cold water. And what this does is it makes the steel hard, like really tough. So if you watch those samurai films, they just cut. And then five seconds later, the guy here splits in half. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right, Kill Bill, all that. So, the process of God's discipline, the process of Paideia, is kind of like this sword making. What he does is he alternates suffering, hot, and joy in the lives of the brothers. So, if we look again at the story of Joseph, that's what happened to him, right? First, he was kind of this spoiled brat. He gets sold as a slave but then eventually he becomes head of this guy's household that's kind of joyful but then again he's brought down he goes to jail now he's prime minister Um, he went through that right he got to know god in moments of suffering and in moments of joy right and he was doing the same thing to his brothers if you paid careful attention to all that scripture we read earlier, you would notice that there would be moments where Joseph would speak harshly to the brothers, you, 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 your spies. And then he would take them, here, here's a buffet for you guys. He would do that. And then he would throw them in jail. You lying to me, but then go to your father, give him the grain. So what was he doing? He was doing the hot and cold. He was alternating. Um, That discipline, It. It. so when we suffer, actually, what I'm learning now in my own life is when we suffer, God begins to show us what's wrong with us. We begin to see our idols. I realized that, um, like, for instance, there was a time when my beautiful wife, uh, she wanted to join, She was, I think she did join The Voice in the Philippines, right? We have two The Voice contestants here, Deb and my, my wife. And so... I had a petition for her, right? She joined this competition. I had a petition for her already. I've spent so much cash. I was broke at the time. And her parents, right, they tell her, oh, you know what? We know your visa's coming, but just postpone that. He can file it again. Just do the competition first. I was shattered, right? You guys know how much uh, fiance visa costs? (laughs) Right. How many meals I skip? Look, I'm skinny. <laughs> I'm losing weight. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, I wasn't losing weight. Uh, but then I, I got really angry and I got really depressed. I was talking to Pastor in song at the time. Pastor, what's, what's going on? What's all this stuff? I can't believe that this is going on. They don't, don't see, see what I went through and all that you know what the Lord made me realize then? I was in love with my plans. I was in love with, with um, my timetable and the things that I wanted to do. And as we, Pastor and Song and I were processing it. He was telling me, you're not even thinking about your fiancé. What about, what about her dreams? What about the stuff she wants to do? You're being selfish. And because God allowed that suffering to enter, I mean, it would have been terrible if, if we got delayed because that's a lot of money that went down the drain but God in that suffering showed me how much I was in love with something else that thing now in hindsight when I look back it's, it seemed childish and immature to me right? but then when I was in there I thought my world was falling apart right? so suffering in suffering God shows us what's wrong but then God also gives us moments of joy so that we don't get encouraged. God is not going to press on the suffering pedal hard all the time. God in this life also gives us moments of, of, of peace and happiness, like great dinners with friends, which was, was what was happening with Joseph and his brothers. So hot and cold produces... Um, I can keep noticing spit coming. out of my I should drink. Don't worry, you're safe, it's far enough. (laughs) Okay, God alternates hot and cold to produce masterpieces. Not spit, (laughs) oh, not spit. Um, But, so that's the picture, right? God allows discipline to transform us into works of art, masterpieces. What we have to realize though, is that this discipline is costly. Not for us, but really for him. Um, so let's ask the question, how is God able to discipline us? You know, why, why was he disciplining Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers? Because they are his people. They are his children. He, he came into their lives and said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be faithful to you. This bad stuff's going to happen, but I'm going to be there. We are only disciplined by a parent. If we are in fact children of said parent, if I go to one of your kids and start disciplining them, you'll knock me out, right? Who is this guy? Why is he disciplining my child? Child, I discipline you. You can't, no, right? You would be offended. How? How dare you discipline my child, Adrian? You're, you're not the dad. Um, the same thing is true for God. God does not really step into the life of someone unless. That someone is in fact his child because that would be weird and wrong (laughs) Um, so the question here is how are we then able to become God's children so let's look at Judah the stuff he said at the end of the the verses we read is really powerful Um, do you guys remember what I said last week about scripture that all scripture points to Jesus Every page of scripture is saturated with Jesus. So here in the passage we read, Judah becomes a foreshadowing of Jesus. So let's read here. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? All of a sudden, because of the hot and cold, all the, 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 maybe the years that he spent thinking about what happened to Joseph, all of a sudden, he stands up, and then what he does is, instead of last time what he did to his brother was he, he dumped him into the pit and sold him for slavery. Now he changed. It's like a different guy. Now he stands in the gap for his brothers, for his brother. Now, what is he saying here? I'm going to take his place, right? Because I'm not going to go back to my father if the boy is not with me, right? It's kind of like the story of, well, the reverse of the prodigal son, that story. The brother there in the story of the prodigal son wasn't like, it was, he wasn't like uh, Judah here. He was, you know, he only thought about himself. But here, He's representing what the older brother in the story of the prodigal son should have done. And he should have, I'm going to look for my brother and I'm not coming back without him. I'm not going to come back without him. Right? I'm not going home without him. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what he did for us. He went down, to the, he went down here, he became one of us, he suffered. He went looking for all of us. And then, even, even though he was on the cross, he didn't leave. Why? Because he wasn't coming back without us. He was going to stand in the gap and he was going to make sure that we got home safe and sound, that we are restored, that we become children of God. That we. Right? Jesus is amazing. Jesus is magnificent. No one would do that for, for me here. I, I wouldn't do that for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> but Jesus is different, right? Jesus is different. He's the, he's the true elder brother. And Judah became his, a foreshadowing of, of, of who he was. On the cross, this is what Jesus says, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a crazy verse because... If you remember, the Pharisees were all mad at Jesus because he kept calling Jesus Abba Father. That was crazy because Abba uh, is the name of a band, right? Uh, but <laughs> not, only, not only is Abba the name of a band, but Abba is also a Hebrew term for father. And it's a term of endearment. It's like daddy, um, you know, something that you would call only your dad. If you call your dad, Tata, if you call daddy, papa, that's it. It's, it it rep- represents intimacy. So Jesus went around praying to God as Abba, and all the Pharisees were angry. Just Nobody there calls God that. He's not your Abba. You're not close to him and all that. So he goes around all this time saying, Abba, Father. But on the cross, what happens? He doesn't say, Abba, Abba, why have you forsaken me? What does he say? My God, my God. That offers us a little bit of insight as to what was going on the, on the cross. Right? Jesus lost his sonship on the cross. He wasn't the son anymore. Um, if you remember, I think Pastor Nathan preached this a year ago, Christmas. He was saying, darkness came over the land when Jesus was on the cross. It was so dark. And that's the few... Uh, few. That's the full fury of God descending upon Jesus. For that moment on the cross, when Jesus was paying for our sin, he ceased to be God's son. Right? He became sin. He took all of our sin, and he was a stranger to God. He was an enemy of God for that brief moment. So he calls him God, not Abba anymore. Right? And that's the price that, that God pays in order to discipline us. For us to become his children, Jesus had to lose his sonship, right? In the end, Joseph and his brothers, they get reunited. But when God sends Jesus, he really goes, you know, J- Joseph becomes a slave. He, he eventually becomes prime minister, he comes. But when God sends Jesus to go after his brothers, he, when they threw him in the pit, when we threw him into the pit, he was dead. We killed Jesus, right? Jesus lost his sonship his birthright, everything, so that we can become God's children, so that God can discipline us, so we have a relationship with Jesus. So when we say we have a relationship with Jesus, that is not a cheap statement. Grace is free to us. Grace is free to us, but it is extremely costly to whom? To Jesus, right? To God. And so when we're going through discipline, we have to remember this fact we are being disciplined because we are children and how we become children is something that we will never understand fully we will never comprehend so what does this mean for us so again because of Jesus we can trust God's discipline when God ordains and allows suffering into our lives we can have hope and we can not despair right because When we look at the cross, we know that God loves us. As Ike was saying this morning, you know, before in Romans 5.8, before we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So now that we are in Christ, if we are encountering suffering, if God is allowing suffering into our lives, when we look at the cross, we can trust that it is ultimately for good. Right? It's not so that, oh, God, allow me to suffer because five, ten years from now, he wants to give me $2 million, right? That's what a prosperity teacher would say. God's allowing you to go through this so that you show faith, and when you're, you show faith, you'll be rewarded. You'll get rich and healthy, right? If you, are, if you are a Christian in Syria, that's not true, right? When they suffer over there, they really suffer, and you can't promise them that, oh, God's going to give you bless you with a, a Benz and a mansion here and now. No, right? But our brothers and sisters, they're dying in Syria. Why? Because, because of Jesus. They know that I'd rather die now than disown Jesus. And I know when I die, right, it's going to be great. I'm going to see Jesus face to face. I'm going to leave this earth with, with all this sorrow and all this stuff. So when we're suffering, we have to keep looking at Jesus so that we do not lose hope, right? So that we trust God. When it seems really hard, when there's a song, right, that says it, when we can't trust God's hand, we trust his heart, right? And God's heart, God's perfection, God's beauty is displayed on the cross to Jesus. Um, Also, this story of God's discipline and what went on with the lives of the brothers It's also a call for us to invest in relationships, specifically discipleship relationships. So God uses people and relationships to discipline us. Why? How do we become messed up people? How do we form bad habits, develop bad ways of thinking? It's because of relationships, right? It's because of relationships that we grew up in, relationships that we've built over the course of many years, all that interaction with other people, that, that deforms us. That changes our hearts. We become bitter. We become cynical and all that. We, we become vengeful. Um, so God is realistic. right? God is not going to come in your sleep and then touch a part of your brain and then you wake up, you're fine. Oh, all of a sudden, the bitterness has gone away. I am... I'm holy, I'm floating. No, right? What God does is he allows people to come into our lives so that we, we change, right? We grow with other believers, right? You can't... Being a Christian means that we're always part of a community, right? So this story tells us that, right? Joseph was actually the one disciplining his brothers the same way God disciplined him. So for us, we have to look for a discipler, Right? And a community of discipleship so that we grow and also this is something that Tim Keller would say we cannot be told what's wrong with with us we have to be shown in the context of a discipleship group a community where you trust each other and love each other eventually you guys will have we will have arguments we will have misunderstandings but that's great that's perfect God allowed for that That's why he says, forgive each other 70 times 7 in a day if you need to, right? Because we only discover the things that are wrong with us in the context of relationships. We see when we fail, when someone fails us, that's when we discover, oh, I didn't realize I was like that. Um, Young guys and gals who want to get married, (laughs) that's what your spouse is going to do for you. They will help you discover what's wrong with you and tell you every day. <laughs> That's not true. My... <laughs> uh, yeah, these, you, know, you know, Pastor I these jokes used to mean nothing to me. And then I got married. <laughs> like, what are you laughing about? Now I know. Right? We cannot be told what's wrong with us, we have to be shown. Um, also, this teaches us. Um, the mindset for accountability in our discipleship groups. We have to approach accountability with truth and grace. So truth is the hot, grace is the cold, right? Accountability cannot be all truth because that would be terrible. I, used, I told you last week, I used to be like that. I would call them, did you sin again? I used to call them, when I was younger, a teenager, that, that, was, that was my thing. That was my shtick. What's wrong with you, Nate? Why are you doing that? What's wrong with you? <laughs> Sean, you did it again. Um, No, it's not always truth. There's also moments of grace, where you just hang out, enjoy each other. I recently hung out with Nate. Nate is really very robotic. (laughs) But when he plays Monopoly Deal, he becomes this slick guy all of a sudden. Tricky moves. He made the Lance pour water on his... No, that was probably... (laughs) But anyway, right? In our communities, we need to confront each other with the darkness that's going on in our hearts but also at the same time we need to encourage one another we have to laugh we have to laugh at, you know it can't be serious all the time because in the end it's funny because we're all sinners anyway and we have to be able to laugh at our mistakes grow together uh, hang out the Lakewood D group I heard is really good with that just laughing hanging out eating (laughs) I can't join you I'm sorry I have heart problems (laughs) So truth and grace, right? That has to be the mindset for our accountability groups. I'm personally, I think I'm still not good at this. I like the truth because I'm a, I'm a hater <laughs> in nature. So I only see the truth and I wanna preach the truth. Um, it's easier, it's harder to be encouraging because being encouraging means you have to, anyway, figure it out. Lastly, right, God's discipline if we filter suffering through the lens of God's discipline, this begins to give us a sober and glorious hope. Right? Sober and glorious hope. Gives us hope. What do I mean when I say sober? A lot of people, because when we read, like let's say the story of Joseph, it's condensed, right? You, you're, we're actually reading through years of a person's life. And the tendency is to say again is to make a template out of that guy's story. Oh, he suffered and he became prime minister. It means I'm suffering now and I will become prime minister as well. I'm going to be rich. Oh, I can't believe it. I'm poor. <laughs> um, that is not realistic, right? Everything we've read here that we discover about God. Is realistic. God uses people to change us. God doesn't wave a magic wand and change us overnight. And so our hope also needs to be sober, right? It needs to be realistic. We, okay, let's just look at the 12 disciples. Except for one, they all died horrible deaths. They didn't die rich. They didn't die famous. They were executed in the most horrendous way you can imagine. But their hope was not here. Their hope was in the life to come with Jesus. They finally understood. First, they didn't understand it. They, they thought that, oh, Jesus is coming. He's going to establish the kingdom here. And all. we'll be rich and all that stuff. No, but eventually, when, when they got to know Jesus for reals, and when they matured in their faith, it was for them a privilege to die for Jesus. Because they knew that they didn't, they're not going to lose anything. They were going to gain something. And so, we as believers, we don't want to become the people who always, like, um, have you ever met those Christians? Those Christians, (laughs) not us. Um, We're always just giving you, you know, pat answers and uh, fluffy advice, right? They all say, you're suffering, you're you're really mourning, and then this guy comes along and says, oh, you'll be fine, God is good, and he'll probably, they try to analyze your situation and say, see, I think he's going to give you a new car. <laughs> That's not realistic, right? We don't know. Some people pray for people who are sick, and they, like, they say that, oh, we pray that he's, we, we want to pray for people who are sick so that they become well. But we have to realize at the same time, God always doesn't answer that, our prayers that way, right? Right? Um, Pastor Insong has been my discipler for X number of years now. Let's just keep it at that because we'll reveal our ages. (laughs) What I always appreciate is when we sit down and and try to process events in 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 my life. He always he doesn't give me a happy ending all the time. When we were uh, when we were when Doki was pregnant and we we knew that we might lose Hannah Burrito our baby. when we sat down with Tita Lenet and Pastor Insoong, they would always tell us, "Hey, you know, God can heal your child easily. It's no problem. But also, let's be prepared if He decides otherwise. If the healing He wants to do is in heaven." So, because of Jesus, because we have hope, because this is not the end for us, we we can become sober, right? We can we can become realistic people. It also helps us to. I think with evangelism, it helps us because when we we meet people out there in the real world who are grieving, we don't come up to them and offer them false advice that God's going to make everything all right. We can actually mourn with them. We can cry with them. We can pray for them, but we're not there to offer them some false hope, right? When we offer up Jesus as our glorious hope, as our future, we're telling them, life here is not good, but Jesus is coming back. And he's going to make everything all right, right. If you can put your trust in him, because he's coming back. Our hope is not a new precedent, better circumstances. Heck, what I'm realizing now is I'm going to die anyway. I'm realizing with all the, these tests on my heart, I'm going to die. But my hope is not living here. My hope is there with Jesus. In John 14, this is what Jesus tells us. I have told you all this so you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will, this is God speaking, right? He's saying you will, we will, have many trials and sorrows. Many trials and sorrows, that doesn't sound pleasant, right? But in the end he redeems it, he says this, but take heart because I have overcome the world. We are looking forward to the day when we will see Jesus again face to face. That is our hope. Right? That is what we look forward to. You know that makes us people who are sorrowful yet rejoicing. Right? We are sorrowful, but we're at the same time we're rejoicing. We do not minimize each other's pain, but we find comfort in the fact that hey, one day Jesus is going to come back. It's going to be all right. right? Jesus. Um, We're going to do communion today. I think Jesus said that we have to do this to remember him. Because he says, I say to you, I will not partake of bread and wine until I return. You know, that's crazy. I was thinking about that earlier this morning. That's crazy. Jesus is basically saying, I'm not going to sit down and have a great meal until all of you are back with me. I'm going to hold off. Because... A Passover meal, the, the communion meal for the Israelites, it's a big dinner. It's a good dinner. Right? They actually have lamb and stuff. Pastor Song, can we do something about that? <laughs> it's good. My doctor won't let me eat lamb. Uh, <laughs> but it's a meal. It's a real... you know, You know when you have dinner with your friends and it's really good, it's great the food's good and, and you have good conversation you have a bit of wine you're a little tipsy so you make better jokes um, those are good meals right you guys have had those Jesus was before he left he was saying before he went to die on the cross he was saying I'm not I'm not gonna have a great meal until until, until I have it with you guys again so until I come back you have that meal so you remember that one day you know we're gonna eat together again and it's going to be really good, right? I'll wipe all your tears away from your eyes, and you'll forget your sorrow. It's like uh, Ephraim's name. You'll forget your sorrow. You will go through it, but you'll forget it, because I'm going to be with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, for your grace. Thank you for your kindness, Lord, that in spite of our suffering, Lord, we can have hope. Lord, you ordain so many things that are terrible in our lives, and... Lord, it's, you don't invent those things, Lord. We are wicked people, and we do it to ourselves. But Lord, because of your grace, you can take those things and make something good out of them, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for for sending Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that on the cross, you, you didn't leave any of us behind, Lord, that you finished your work, that you were faithful, Lord, and that you endured suffering, Lord, so that we may have hope in ours. Lord, thank you that ultimately, Lord, your answer to suffering is not an explanation, Lord, but your answer to suffering is sending your son to suffer with us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. Um, Because of what you've done on the cross, Lord, we know that when we do suffer, that you are with us, and that that suffering is not in vain. Lord, uh, we thank you, and give us... Hopeful hearts, Lord, give us, give us hearts that are thirsty for, for the day when we have a meal with you again. In your name, Lord Jesus, we humbly pray. Amen. I'll
1: show that last verse again. John fourteen thirty three. I have told you all this so that you may have peace. Did it have a period? No. He said that you may have peace in me. So where is real peace? In the person of Christ Jesus. You might be enticed by a church. Join our church because we're like this, we're like that. In our church, you will have good health. In our church you will be rich. Is that true? According to John fourteen thirty three, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. So beware of those who are after your souls and entice you with false doctrine. But what is the truth? take heart because I have overcome the world. With that, we can celebrate with joy the Lord's table. The Lord's table is special. It is for those who have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is those who are children of God through faith in Him. And if you... Want to partake of the Lord's Supper, it means one, you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Number two, you are not willing to harbor, to cherish any sin in your life. Because if you do, you are inviting discipline upon yourself. Let me explain. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we do it to commemorate the Last Supper, the breaking, the giving up of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats of the bread Or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Why is it important for us to examine? Number one, do I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Check. You can partake. Why is it important that I must examine myself? I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but there is just this one thing I'm not willing to give up. What is that thing, my friend, my brother, my sister? That is your idol. And God hates idolatry. You must refrain. Why? Because if you do that and you partake in an unworthy manner, You are calling upon discipline upon yourself. Really? 29. He who eats and drinks each judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Sometimes when I preach, a number sleep. But in this particular passage of Scripture, the Bible, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, is giving us a very stern warning. If any of you partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, as some of them did, that word sleep, look at it again. Weak, sick, sleep means physical death. So it is a serious thing to partake of the Lord's Supper. But it is a time of commemoration. Why? Because the judgment of God for all of our sins fell upon Jesus. And we can also celebrate that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have a sober and living hope. So we're going to open up the Lord's table this morning. And as you're seated, then as you come to partake, get the elements of the juice and the bread. Representing the body and blood of Jesus. Take a few moments and answer for yourselves. As the Bible encourages, examine yourself. Whether I am in the body, meaning I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm committed not to harbor or cherish any sin in my life. If that is you, brother or sister, come. Come to the table of mercy. Drink of the wine. Eat of the bread. And celebrate the Lord's table. Come. And we shall partake together. Bible does not teach or preach that these elements really are the body and blood of Jesus Christ. They are merely representations of his body which is the bread and the representation of his blood which is the wine. Before we partake and as we examine ourselves If there is anyone here this morning who does not yet have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, perhaps now is the time to put your trust in Jesus. And because he is no respecter of persons, he will accept you as is, but he will not let you remain as is. If you're here this morning and God is telling you that there are idols in your lives. Appropriate the promise of God in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. That if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, as we take this piece of bread representing your body, your bruised and battered body upon which you took all of our sins. Lord Jesus, we commemorate what you did. And we also celebrate that because of what you did, our sins are paid for. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we do this in remembrance of you. Let us partake together. taking the cup of juice in our hands which represent the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you said that without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness, no remission for our sins. No amount of good works, no amount of church, no amount of Bible studies, Lord God, can take away the penalty of our sins. But it is your blood, Lord your unblemished blood that changed our scarlet sins and made it white as snow. So Lord Jesus, as we take this cup of juice which represents your blood, let it be a constant reminder and a deterrent for every time that we are tempted to sin. Allow us, Lord, to remember that you shed your precious and unblemished blood For all of our sins. This morning Lord God. We remember. And we celebrate. The shedding of your. Son's blood. For the payment of our sins. Let's partake of the juice. God Almighty. We thank you that we can celebrate the Lord's Supper. We thank you that we can listen from your word but most importantly Lord we celebrate your presence in our lives that when we go through times of discipline Lord even if it pains us even if it hurts us Lord we can trust your heart because how can we doubt you our God our Father when you have sacrificed your one and only Son for the salvation of our souls. Instead of questioning what, Lord God, what this discipline is all about, teach us, Lord, I pray, that we ask the right questions. What is it that you want us to learn? What is it, Lord, in our lives that displeases you? And how, Lord God, can we live more and more like your son, Jesus Christ? And we pray all of these things in his name, in everyone's said, Amen and amen. Let's give God the glory this morning. Again, here in CCF LA, we take time to break out into our discussion groups. And we have these discussion questions for you to share with one another. The Bible uses three basic metaphors to describe how people relate to idols of their hearts. They love idols, they trust their idols, and they obey their idols. Question, we can help each other locate idols by asking these questions. Looking at your daydreams. What are you enjoying? What are you imagining? What are your fondest daydreams? The other side is looking at your nightmares. What do you fear the most? What if you lost what if we lost it would make life not worth living for you? Third question, looking at your most unyielding emotions, what makes us uncontrollably angry, anxious or even despondent? B, if you've identified your idols, what practical steps can you take along with your D group to eliminate these from your life? And letter C, What role do you think the gospel plays in the struggle?